welcome to Ghoulish Tendencies. I'm Gabby. And I'm Kim. And we are two paranormal investigators who dive into the depths of the famous and not so famous cases of murder, ghosts, legends, and lore with a healthy dose of debunking. Okay. Sculling with a C. Sculling with a C. I feel like that should be the new name of our podcast. Sculling with a C. Yeah. And just have a picture of like Dana Scully rolling her eyes. Like that's <laughs> probably the most on brand thing we could do. That's um, true. But anyhow, yeah. I'm, I'm kind of excited for this week's episode. Is it because it's a not so famous? Yeah, it is a not so famous. It's a not so famous. I feel like we've been sitting on some pretty famous topics lately, which is good. We have. Mm-hmm. I like the famous. I like the famous, but I have a special place in my heart for some of the lesser known stories. I love introducing people to lesser known stories too, because I'm like, what? I had no idea about this one. No, this is one of those cases where I think if you were born in the Pacific Northwest, spoiler alert, it is another Washington case. Uh, Gabby and I both live in Seattle, if you had not figured that out from the various comments we make. And I was born here. Uh, I was not. So I am a newer person to the Pacific. You're a newer person. But we have some really fascinating and weird cases that have have come out of the Pacific Northwest. And I don't just mean the fact that we also have less serial killers because we have that too. Uh, But this specific case actually centers around uh, Olympic National Park. Ooh. Which, if you've never been up there and you have the opportunity to go, it is gorgeous. It is Please. absolutely stunning. Give me a reason to leave my house. <laughs> it's, it is beautiful. And specifically, we're going to be looking at a place called Lake Crescent. Lake Crescent is the second deepest lake in Washington. Lake Chelan oh. is the first. Um, in fact, at one point in time, a lot of people thought the lake was bottomless. Wait, how is that a thing? Hold on. <laughs> you know, it's funny because you read, I still will read that sometimes, Some an article where it's like, and the lake's bottomless. I'm like, I, does it go to the core of the earth? Is it a mimosa? You know, I don't understand. Are you, are you using hyperbole? Uh, it's, it's not. It's not actually bottomless. Anyway, uh, scullying already. We haven't. Even I'm scullying already. <laughs> but the, the deepest point they've been able to map is about 650 feet deep. Mm-hmm. And to give you some frame of reference for how deep that is, the Space Needle is like 605 feet tall. Okay. So this is several stories higher than the Space Needle in terms she of She's deep. She deep. She real deep. She real deep. Uh, the water is renowned for being extremely blue. And part of the reason is that there is a very low nitrogen content in the water. So algae doesn't grow. Oh. So you can like look down and, you know, see shit. Initially, the Lake Crescent Valley drained into the Indian Creek Valley and then into Elwha River. And according to local legends, the Klalam and the uh, Kiliut tribe fought a horrific battle at the base of Mount Storm King. The mountain king was angered and he broke off a huge chunk from the top and threw it down into the valley where the the battle was happening and it killed all the warriors and it dammed off the river and that created Lake Crescent. Hmm. The tribes avoided the area thinking it was cursed. Now, an alternative for what could have happened is that about a thousand years ago, there was a big earthquake and a landslide happens. I mean, that seems more... uh 
accurately oh. depicted maybe I, th- maybe the two were hand in hand i don't i don't want to i don't want to crush okay, anyone's fair. legend all right, uh, all right. you don't want to crush a legend who are you not not when it's uh, i i i really appreciate the indigenous tribe legends i really enjoy those That's and most fair. of them are rooted somewhere in a, an event that actually happens so i like tying in the the mystical and the history with that kind of i think that's fun okay i i support that decision now it is said that Lake Crescent never gives up its dead. Wait, what? <laughs> Lake Crescent never gives up its dead. So is it an infinite black hole of dead people? Well, apparently it's bottomless. So I mean, so. <laughs> this is proven to be somewhat true. Now, uh, one medical examiner in the 1940s, he actually said that there were 100 bodies in the lake. That is probably an exaggeration. Wow. But... There have been a lot of incidents and accidents and disappearances around the lake. One notable one was uh, Russell and Blanche Warren, who disappeared in 1929. They were coming back from Port Angeles with a new washing machine, and they just never got home. And their car was finally discovered in the lake in 2002. What? Wait, it was in the lake that whole time? It was in the lake that whole time. It was about 170 feet down in the water. Wait, so it did have a bottom? It, yeah. <laughs> yes, Gabby, it did. Just, you know, <laughs> confirming, that's all. Uh, and a femur bone that they found, they were able to, to use DNA to link it to Russell Warren and confirm it was indeed their car. So there was a little closure there for the family. A woman named Marion Frances Steffens of Chicago, she disappeared in 1939 while she was hiking. Another man in 1939, William Walker, who was a student staying at the resort on the lake. He also went to go hiking and never returned. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. On the 27th of August in 1956, an ambulance uh, that had picked up an injured lumberjack in Forks named Ernest Monroe Dahlgren. He'd broken his leg and was strapped in a gurney. They were heading to the hospital in Port Angeles and the ambulance crashed into the lake. Oh, my God. So the medics, they were able to get out, but Ernest was strapped Uh-oh. to a gurney. Oh, no. Ernest did not make it, folks. I'm sorry. Poor Ernest. Poor Ernest. Uh, then you have Israel Keys, which, P.S., we totally need to do an episode on Israel Keys. <laughs> that dude was scary. But he was a serial killer caught in 2013, and he taunted police when he was caught, saying, you guys know about Lake Crescent in Washington, right? But so according to Keyes, he killed two around the lake and dumped one body in the water from a boat, weighing it down and dropping it at a point at at least 100 feet down. They have not recovered any bodies, but this is a very deep lake and it's a big lake. And so it is not hard for me to imagine he dumped some bodies there that are there and we've never discovered. Also because it doesn't have a bottom. (laughs) Yes, because it doesn't have a bottom. (laughs) The black hole. That just sucked the bodies into the core of the earth to be demolished by the heat. I just think that's how you feed Godzilla. He's just hanging out down there, like picking off the bodies. He needs a a snack. He's Uh, hungry. He's hungry. I mean, I get that. I get hangry if I haven't had a dead body or two. I turn into Godzilla when I am. (laughs) But as you can see, the lake has some baggage. Literal and figurative. Yes, literally. You're going to be making puns throughout this whole thing. I can already feel it happening in my bones. <laughs> I mean, yeah, to yeah. be expected. 
to That's be fair. expected. I knew, I knew what I was getting myself into. Yep. So these are all interesting stories, but it is not the story we're going to be talking about today. Oh, what's the story? We're going to specifically be looking at the story of the Lady of the Lake. Ooh, she ominous. She ominous, I know. On July 6th of 1940, two brothers were trout fishing on the lake and they saw a strange colored object floating. Now, obviously they never see, have seen a horror film because they were like, oh, hey, we should check that out. That's how every horror film starts. So I know. Good luck. What? It could have been a mannequin, right? Or a head. Yeah. Who knows? It's never a mannequin. We know that. Take a shot. <laughs> What they discovered were two layers of gray striped blankets wrapped around a body. Oh. Uh, it was the body of a woman. She was wearing a green wool dress, silk stockings with a garter and underwear. The legs, arms, thighs, and waist had been bound with rope. Yes. She'd been hogtied. The body was white. The flesh was soft and broke easily. Ooh. In fact, this was, this was my favorite. One of the descriptions I read in all the articles compared it to Silly Putty. What? <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> the consistency of Silly Putty. Like soft and so squishy So were they just like smushing it? Like, what's this? I want to touch it. Well, <laughs> like no, but if you, if you touch something, if you're trying to bring the body in and you touch it and immediately oh, the, the whole flesh... Thing, like, melting around their hands? Well, not quite that extreme, but the, the flesh was malleable. So what had happened is that the minerals in the lake reacted with fat of her body with the added bonus of the very cold water acting as essentially a refrigerator. Uh, all of this led to saponification of the corpse's body. Which, for those of you who are not familiar with saponification... It made it a little soapy soap soap? It, essentially, the corpse was turned into a soap lady. When conditions are very, very right, or very, very wrong, depending on your perspective, <laughs> a dead body can transform from corpse to soap because what do you make? What did they used to make soap out of animal fat, lye and scent, right? Yeah. Fat. Fat. Yeah. A little bit of soap lives in us all. Some of us have a lot of soap. What can I say? We're all dirty people and need the soap. We all need the soap. <laughs> dirty, dirty. Wash your hands. However, because the body had been exposed to the air and the way the body was laying, the upper part of her face and the nose were gone as were the tips of her fingers. So that was going to make it really hard to facially recognize the body, even though it was so well-preserved, and you couldn't use fingerprints. It's a little problematic. It's a little problematic. So, so our brothers went to find help, and the closest place was the local fish hatchery. And the superintendent there, he knew the brothers. And this part I, I, I had to have a little chuckle at, because the superintendent thought they found a deer. What? How? Well, I don't know, because I'm sorry. If someone runs up to me and says, like, I think I just found a dead human body, my first thought is not like, nah, man, it must be a deer. Like, do you not look remotely similar? And also, that would make me want to implicate this person for, like, thinking it's a deer. Like, do you know that there's a dead person in the lake? Did you put her there? No, I would just, I would just think, I think he probably, I don't know if he knew them. Maybe he thought they were drunk. I don't okay. know. There's that. <laughs> Lots like, of different perspectives. You've been, you've been fishing and having a little too much, you know, but 
or I could suppose if it was bones, if you found bones and somebody was like, I think they're human bones, mm-hmm. I could see possibly saying, well, okay, let's take a step back. Are you sure they're not animal bones? Let's take a look. But a deer in a dead body, a dead body wrapped in a blanket, wearing a dress. Wait, do deers wear dresses now? Is oh, that a only, thing? Only the very well best dressed deers. Like if you're a classy deer. If you're, if you're a doe. If you're oh, a female <laughs> deer. No, a deer. A female deer. Anyway, the superintendent goes and did in fact at some point realize that what he was looking at was not a deer. So that's good. Maybe he was drunk. Maybe he was drunk. <laughs> they brought the body to a woodshed to try to ID it. Uh, it was obvious that with ropes tied around the body, this was not a body that had died naturally. Right. The local police actually enlisted a 26-year-old man named Harlan McNutt, which... That name. That's the best name ever. That's, that's Kim's name of the day. <laughs> Harlan McNutt. Love it. He had just finished his first year of medical school, uh, and they asked him to come take a look at the body. The neck was bruised. The chest had evidence of extensive hemorrhaging. Mm. So that led them to believe that the young woman had been beaten severely and strangled. Oh, no. Now, closer inspection showed the corpse did have on a green dress, stockings, garter, and that even though she had been beaten pretty severely, the cause of death was strangulation. Oh, geez. The corpse had bunions on her feet. The color of her hair was either brown or auburn, and she was also busty. Ooh, okay. Well, again, she was well-preserved. They could tell she was busty. So McNutt, and I, I can't say his name with straight face. <laughs> I feel like you want to say McDuck the whole time. I want to say a lot of things. <laughs> there's, so testicle. Many, there's so many things to say when your last name is McNutt. Oh, that's... Mm, he got teased on the playground, poor thing. Uh, He tried to get the jaw open, but he couldn't. So the sheriff, I guess, wanting to be helpful was like, hey, I can pry the mouth open. Wait, why would he want to get the mouth open so badly? I don't know. Examination, I guess. Examination. You're doing you're doing a a thorough examination, an autopsy of the body. You have to you have to examine it. But trying to pry a mouth open of a corpse. Shockingly, the jaw fell off. (laughs) I mean, that's effective. That's, I mean, it, I, it, the mouth did open then. Yeah. That is uh, the big gaping the hole. Big gaping hole. Kind of like the lake. Not, <laughs> you're not putting that back on, though. No. No. That's done. That nope. Mm-hmm. So, even though they inadvertently severed the jaw from the body, uh, they did reveal that the woman had a six tooth upper dental bridge made of gold. Oh. That's a clue. That's fairly distinct that could possibly lead them to identify this body. So they started looking at missing person cases to try to see if they could figure out. And and they did actually look at Marion Frances Steffens, who was that woman who disappeared in 1939. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the, the physicality didn't match up. And she had also had an old injury that they didn't have any signs on in the body. And when they asked her mother, her mother was like, yeah, she didn't have an upper dental plate. So that can't be her. So they, they published pictures of this dental plate, sent them across the nation, offered a $100 reward. It took a year. Wow, that's a long time. Well, it's, you know, it's also 1940. Okay, it's not like they had, you know, email. That's <laughs> you're true. Not, you're not posting this picture or faxing it over or faxing. Oh, I just dated myself. So the picture was identified after a year. 
by one Dr. Albert J. McDowell, who is a dentist in South Dakota, who recognized his work and said that he made it for a Hallie Latham Spracker in October of 1926. Spracker? Hardly newer. Spracker, (laughs) Spraker, I don't know. But it, it took them a year, but they did finally identify the body. So Hallie was actually born Hallie Brooks Latham, and she was born on January 8th of 1901 in the small town of Greenville, Kentucky. Okay. She was the fifth in what would later be 13 children. Oh my God. I know. I'm going to speak for all the ladies in the room where I'm like, ouch, my vagina. <laughs> Wolf. It's just, yeah. No, thank you. No, thank you. Her parents were Finnis Marion and Mary Susan Bunny Latham. What is with these names? Well, Bunny, I'm guessing, because Bunny was in quotes. Bunny is her nickname. And, and I will Did say, she- okay. Hop around. A oh lot. my goodness, Gabby! I'm going <laughs> to smack you through Zoom. Uh, <laughs> no, but I'm not going to lie. I initially was like, "What grown woman calls herself Bunny?" But then I was like, "I mean, to be fair, now we have nicknames like the Situation and Jay Wow, and it's, you know what? I'll Bunny's not so bad. It just progressively gets worse, you know. Yeah, uh, the family grew corn and tobacco. And Hallie spent most of her time watching her siblings working the farm. She stopped going to school in the eighth grade. In 1917, her family moved to South Dakota, where they managed to support themselves, but barely. And Hallie was not satisfied with this. She wanted more. So she was described as being a really outgoing girl, friendly to everybody, pretty with thick auburn hair and very energetic. At the age of 18, she married a man named Floyd James... Spracker, Spraker, tomato, however tomato. you say that. Tomato, yeah. tomato. He was a World War I vet and was working as an auto mechanic. And before long, they had a daughter, Doris Marie. They lived in a one-story bungalow and Hallie stayed home. Floyd went to work as a salesman, living their life. But Hallie was still restless. So she got a job and her marriage started to crumble. When the, they announced they were divorcing after about a decade together, her family was shocked But, I mean, I I think especially during that time, like, it's really easy to be on the outside of a situation and not realize somebody's really unhappy. Fair. Definitely fair. And then the Great Depression hit. So Hallie continued to work as a waitress, uh, and in doing so, she met a man named Donald B. Strickland. He was 24, working in the restaurant business, and Hallie was 31 at this point, as many women over 30 do. So I hear I'm 29 years old, so I don't know if this is Whoa. actually true. <clears throat> uh, she, f- <laughs> she fudged about her age. <laughs> she said she was 26. Oh, yep. She may have also implied that she was widowed, not divorced. Hmm. So Donald and Hallie got married on August 8th of 1932. The depression was getting worse, though. So the newlyweds decided to pack up and they moved west. Very west. Seattle West. In 1932, the population in Seattle was about uh, 370,000. And there was a surprising amount of work available. So they they opened up a restaurant on the corner of Broadway and East Pine. Oh, Capitol Hill. Capitol Hill. Well, it's like eight minutes from where I live. Like I could, I walk there. I walked there the other day to get my groceries. This was short-lived. Their marriage crumpled within the year and Hallie decided that Seattle was not the right place for her and moved out to the Olympic Peninsula. Which is like as close to Canada as you can get without moving to Canada. Yeah. I suppose that in Bellingham. So 
She started working at the Lake Crescent Tavern as a waitress, which still exists. It's now called the Lake Crescent Lodge. So if you want to check it out, you can. We should go there whenever things are open and safe. We should. I'm totally down for that. I want to go. Be a little ghoulish tendencies field trip. (gasps) Be fun. Field trip. Sometime in late 1934, early 1935, she was waiting tables and this hunky hunky beer truck driver came in. Ooh, hubba hubba. Hubba hubba. Was it Rainier? It should be Rainier. I want it to be Rainier. Ron Yay. It's the Cadillac of beers in the Pacific Northwest. (laughs) As Kim holds up a LaCroix. Would you prefer I hold up my whiskey? Like, which... which I don't no. drink a lot of beer. I'll drink some beer, but it's not my drink of choice. Whiskey's my drink of choice. I know, wine. I'm well aware. Or pretty much anything else. Anyway. Hunky Hunky Driver comes in. She got her flirt on and he liked it. His name was Montgomery Illingworth. That name. All these names. But he went by Monty. Everybody called him Monty. Uh, and they bonded. He was also divorced. He had a daughter. And again, Hallie was like, you cute. You cute, boo. She was like, yo, girl. <laughs> exactly. Monty was younger than Hallie. Uh, he was born in 1908. So there was about a seven-year age difference there. Ooh, girl, you robbed that cradle. For the second time, too. Get it. But this really bothered Hallie. She was really secure about their age difference because at this point too she's in her 30s she's not even in her you know well she was i suppose she was 31 when she met her other husband she was just lying and saying she was 26 but she just sort of laid it on the table mm-hmm. uh, which i get you do hit a point in the dating scene especially if you've been married before where you're like i mean, honestly a first date with me i think is like listen i work as a ghost hunter i talk about murder i could tell you the best place to bury bodies i drink whiskey and i have a cat <laughs> accurate there it is. There it all is. I, is. I don't know why I never get a second date. Why we love you, Kim Delphit. You love me. Nobody else does. Oh it's my it's God. the cat, though. It's the cat. It's the get cat. That's the deal breaker. Nobody likes cats. That's, no. So she, she lays it out for him. She's like, I smoke. I have bad bunions. I drink too much. But I'm into you. So if that all sounds cool, Wando Thang. I mean, respect. Respect, yeah. And Monty was like, you drink too much? I drink too much. Perfect. Perfect. Match made in heaven. Match made in heaven. Everyone take a shot. So they started dating. But it was not smooth sailing. Uh, In fact, at one point in 1936, they were out of the bar. Hallie got jealous of a woman she felt like was, I don't know, making eyes at Monty. And so she hit her with a bar stool. Oh, yes. I like her. (laughs) She's sassy. I want (laughs) to hang out with her. And she sounds fun. Because who hasn't thrown a bar stool once or twice? You know? And and shortly after the barstool incident, they got married June 16th of 1936. So it really sealed the deal. <laughs> it sealed the deal. I guess he's the kind of guy that's like, you threw a barstool to a woman for me. Let's get hitched. That's that's hot. Now that is a proposal. That's a proposal. So things didn't really get better, though. They'd been married about five months and police got called out to their place to break up a fight. Uh-oh. And this became... Fairly common. Uh, the oh, landlady no. overheard one night when they were fighting Hallie crying out, Monty, don't. She'd come to work with bruises on her face, on her oh. arms, black eyes. During oh, no. one fight, he choked her and broke one of her teeth. Oh, my God. Her throat was so swollen she couldn't swallow and <gasps> needed help eating. Oh. In front of her friends and coworkers one time, he punched her in the face, knocking what? her to the ground. Yeah. Oh, and Monty was a, was a big guy. 
And he, he weighed about 200 pounds. He was bigger than, than Hallie by quite a bit. So the, the drinking and the fighting just became a cycle. I mean, that just sounds like a lot of abuse. It does. That's yeah. Really bad. Well, Hallie was insecure and jealous. Like Monty was a womanizer. That's hands down. That did not stop when they got married. Um, she'd follow him. She'd confront him. He'd have women in his, his truck. One time she went into a brothel. He was at a brothel and she was, she stormed in and caused the scene. Like this was not a healthy relationship. No. So it's December 21st of 1937. And Hallie wants to go out. She puts on her green wool dress that Monty had given her money to buy, put on silk stockings, ready to go have a good time. It's the holidays. She goes to a party at the Annex Hotel and Tavern, has drinks, picks a fight with a woman. Uh Uh-oh. Group of her friends, they pack up, they go to another friend's house, keeps drinking, leaves at about 2 a.m., very, very drunk. Yikes. This would be the last time her friends would see her. She'd be killed that night, wrapped in blankets and rope, body weighed down and dumped in the lake. Now, what they think is that the body was probably dumped somewhere about 300 feet down. Again, that's half the Space Needle, based on the location the body came up at. So they believe it was weighed down and dumped there. But as time passed, the ropes started to rot. And her body starts to change as, it, as it's turning to soap. I mean, what happens if you put a little piece of soap in water? It floats. So as her body is changing, it's becoming more buoyant. And ultimately, it made its way to the surface about two and a half years after it was dumped in the lake. Wow, that's a long time. It's a long time. But she was preserved. So she was soapy, she was preserved. but preserved. Mm-hmm. That's so crazy. So. Police have an identity for the body and one that brings with it a fairly obvious suspect. Her, her husband. Hubby, hubby. Her hubby, hubby, the man who had repeatedly assaulted her. So they track Monty down. He's living in Long Beach, California. Oh, hey, that's pretty far. Uh-huh. <laughs> Working as a bus driver and living with a woman named Eleanor Pearson. So he tells police he hasn't seen Hallie since around Christmas of 1937 when she ran off to Alaska with a sailor and abandoned him. That sounds awfully convenient. Awfully convenient. He'd even filed for divorce. What? But what was interesting is he didn't put abandonment down as the reason he was divorcing her. What did he say? It was like, whatever the equivalent in 1937 of irreconcilable differences. Huh. So the statement he gave the police was, I went home and she came home. She had been drinking. I left. When I came home, she was gone. She took her stuff and left. Sure. Don't you think, like, if this had happened and she had been gone, did anybody file any kind of missing persons report when she wasn't home? Or did he just, like, tell everybody that she left? He told everybody she left, um, which people were suspicious of it. But this is also, again, this is 1937. Right. What are they going to do? Call her cell phone? <laughs> like, her family was convinced that he'd done something because they never got letters. And she was very close with some of her sisters. Mm-hmm. There was no way she wouldn't have written to them. Right. So the fact that 
he says she ran off to Alaska, but then they hear nothing from her for two and a half years. That so I think it was one of those things where a lot of people were convinced something had happened to her, but there was just I mean, honestly, it's kind of a Robert Durst situation, you know, whose wife disappeared and everybody is fairly convinced that he killed his wife, but there was just no evidence. And he was like, well, my evidence, Evidence. my wife ran off. What do you want from me? So uh, there wasn't a whole lot anybody could do because you Mm -hmm. didn't file a missing persons report the same way. Like that's, that's not something in 1937 you'd really do. You could report someone missing to the police, but it's not like they can they're not going to send pictures across the country because right. especially when the husband is like, she ran off with a sailor. They're like, well, there you go. She, she ran off with a sailor. So nothing was really fully taken into consideration. No, because again, nothing, there was nothing really anyone could do. That's so frustrating. It's incredibly frustrating. What was interesting though, so the woman that he was living with, Eleanor Pearson, Eleanor Pearson had known Hallie because she'd lived for a stretch with Hallie's sister, Lois. And Monty started seeing her shortly after Hallie, quote, unquote, left him. (laughs) Air quotes. Yeah, air quotes. Well, because he said, too, he said about Eleanor, I was up at her house quite a bit. We were friendly. You Mm. know what I mean? Mm. He said that. He said, you know what I mean? He said, do do you know what he means, Gabby? Do you know what he means? I think I know what he means. Does he? Checkers? Does he mean checkers? Checkers. Checkers. (laughs) They're playing checkers. They're playing checkers. They're playing checkers. They're playing checkers. I love checkers. Really, really knew how to play that game real well. Real well. He was, you know, king me. Uh, (laughs) So police question the fact that like, okay, but you were the last person then to have seen your wife. That's, that's kind of weird, isn't it? And his response was quote, well, it's as much a mystery to me as it is to you. What does that even mean? I don't know. <laughs> it's like a normal thing to say when your wife, you find out your wife's dead body has popped up. Like That's just a deflection, like full deflection. It, he was very good at that. So they arrest him. They extradite him to Washington State for the trial. He pleads not guilty, but his story is also not staying super consistent. He's telling people different things. And his defense was trying all sorts of strategies. In fact, the defense tried to say that she was the one abusing him and he never beat her. What? I know. Because well, I, 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 I'm not saying that it's not out of their own possibility that she ever hit him. Like, uh, given how violent their fights were, I'm sure she did at some point. Right. But he was obviously abusing her. Or yeah. they were mutually abusing each other. But, like, even if they were mutually abusing each other, it doesn't make it okay. Oh, no, not at all. Nor does it mean that, like, he's probably not as beat up as she is, to be fair. Well, and, and, I mean, again, it it was obviously untrue also. There was so many witnesses who could testify to the fact that she came in with black eyes, with bruises, with scratches. He hit her in front of her friends. That's... Using that as a tactic, evidence, Evidence. yeah, no, like, dude, no. So his defense attorney, Joseph Johnston, he brought forth witnesses that said they'd seen Hallie since 1937, really pushing the narrative that the body that was found wasn't Hallie, and they couldn't prove that it was. 
That's shady shit right there. That's shady shit. And he also argued that there's no way the body could have been in the lake for two and a half years. How? Because of how well preserved it was. This is not a body that's been in a lake. Like it's, it's been perfectly preserved, save for the face being exposed. How could this be a woman who's been missing for two and a half years? Because science? Remembering it is the year 1940. <laughs> Just saying. I, again, I don't disagree with you, but you do have to look at context when you're saying some of these things. Fair. It's not really fair of us to judge the science of 1940 and what they could or couldn't prove. And, and again, they were saying, no, 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 this is how it was preserved. So while he was being cross-examined on the stand, Monty actually said, I'm trying to tell the truth, Max. That was the prosecutor's name, Max, if you hadn't figured that out. Got it. I never killed anybody. You're trying to get me mixed up. Also, fun fact. You love Kim's fun facts, right? I do. Max I do. Church, who was the prosecutor, mm-hmm. he was actually the attorney that, that filed uh, Monty's divorce from Hallie in 1938. <laughs> well, this must have been a nice, fun reunion then. I mean, it's, it's, I doubt they probably even remembered each other out of their name because they probably had very little contact, but I just thought that was interesting. Well, I suppose that's also why he felt compelled to call him Max and not Mr. Church. Maybe they just had that kind of a relationship. Maybe they did. So another witness for the prosecution was a woman named Mrs. Harry McDonald, which can we take a moment to say how much I hate in old newspapers when they're recording somebody's name? They don't ever give the woman's name if she's married. And that drives me bonkers. Well, I was just going to say, was her name actually Harry? (laughs) (laughs) No, but no, it it actually makes it harder to research because I've been running into this with my Jake Bird research. The extra research I've been doing is a couple of the people are so often referred to as Mrs husband's name that I have to do so much digging to find out their name (laughs) so I can research them. So anyway, another witness for the prosecution was a woman, Mrs. Harry McDonald's. Let's call women by their names, please, not by their husband's names. She managed a hotel that uh, Hallie and Monty had stayed at and they'd had a fight over. And apparently Hallie had bit Monty. What? And Mrs. Harry McDonald overheard Monty saying that he should have choked her after. (gasps) Yeah. Uh, Friends would testify that the clothes she wore matched the clothes on the corpse the last time she was seen alive. But the, the real damning evidence was actually the rope that was used because a man named Harry Brooks, he had loaned about 50 feet of rope to a beer truck driver that he would later ID as Monty. Loans. Yeah. Monty said he needed it to get something. I don't remember. It was, you know, pull something, something. or but something. Did he think he was going to get it back? He did. Well, you lend somebody rope, they give it back. Uh, but the rope was never returned. And he still had part of the original length of the rope. So they compared fibers from the rope found on the corpse. Oh. To the pieces they had. And it was a match. That's impressive that they did that back then. Well, it was 1940. It wasn't 1840. I know, but I'm still like <laughs> trying to be perspective-wise. Uh, they, they did have some things they could use. So the prosecutor asked for the death penalty, which um, strangely, his defense attorney actually said during the trial, either turn him loose or hang him. Why? His defense attorney. His defense attorney said that. That doesn't make sense. That's a great slogan for your business card. As a defense attorney. Let him attorney. lose a hang him. Yeah, right? Yeah. 
So the defense argued that the state's case was entirely circumstantial, which in all fairness, it kind of was. It was a pretty circumstantial case, Mm -hmm. but a compelling case. Sure. The trial lasted nine days in total. The jury deliberated for four hours and found him guilty of second degree murder on March 5th of 1942. Now, the common theory is that the murder was not premeditated. Um, Hallie was probably killed uh, during one of their fights that turned violent, as they often did, and then turns a little too violent. The hog tying makes me question if that was something that was done prior to death to just like... Hog tie? Oh, no, that was, done, that was done after death. He wrapped her in a blanket and hogtied the blanket to her. She was, oh. she was definitely dead when that happened. <laughs> For some reason, I imagined it being hogtied and then wrapped around in, with a blanket. Like the rope uh, was around her directly, you know, not on the blanket. the blanket would have fallen away then. Oh, I guess. Okay. So the, the, cause the, what, what he did was he wrapped the body in the blanket, weighed it in some way, probably, probably put rocks or something in there and then tied it. So the rocks so it all stay. stayed together. It was Got a nice little clean it. bundle. I, I do have pictures of the corpse. We can always post to Instagram if you'd like. That's a very good description, and we can definitely do that, too, as long as we don't offend too many people. <laughs> we probably will. It's fine. <laughs> to me, the most maddening part is that Monty only served nine years in prison. What? Really? Yeah, he was paroled on January 10th of 1951, went on to live his life, died on November 5th of 1974. Boo. Boo. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm glad that he went to prison for some amount of time, but this is not a case where I feel like justice was necessarily fully served. I would agree with you on that. And I would think that the defense lawyer should have held him to the, that slogan that he had. Yeah, that's not going to, that's not going to get you a lot of jobs. I uh, know. Now there are a handful of ghost stories associated with Lake Crescent. <gasps> Ooh, ghosties. According to one article I read uh, by Clark Hayes and Kathleen McFall, the place that would become the Crescent Lodge was at one point the Singer Tavern in the 1920s, and it was a known brothel. Oh. So if an old tavern is likely to have some spirits, uh, an old tavern that was also a brothel is going to have even more. That's a lot of energy, a lot of different kinds of energy. Um, Now, anytime you're dealing with ghost stories you also have to to respect that these are largely anecdotal these are people reporting something that happened to them and it getting passed around and around and around so Mm -hmm. take all of these with a grain of salt because none of them are first-hand accounts so it's like a really fun ghost telephone game it's it's i mean this is essentially the kind of thing that if you went on a ghost tour they would tell these stories but none of these were i i found no firsthand accounts by somebody who had experienced any of this themselves it was all other people reporting on things got it um although i i did read a couple comments from staff members who talked a little bit about the noises so most of the hauntings are uh attributed to hallie Sure. She is seen gliding across the surface of the lake or floating in the lake. Other reports are of a dark, pale figure that is almost translucent walking on the shore. A figure of a woman is also seen at the Lake Crescent Lodge where she used to work, sometimes sitting at a table, smoking a cigarette. In fact, guests even report the smell of cigarette smoke. Mm. 
There are reports of her spirit speaking to guests every so often, uh, some not realizing she's a spirit until she is suddenly not there. This was some of the stuff that that staff apparently said. Mysterious footsteps heard uh, moving up and down the stairs in the early hours, lights flickering, and sometimes music playing from the lounge area. Oh. And what they usually say as well, Hallie liked to party, so it must be her. Uh, and there is the odd report of people seeing a ghostly apparition of a man rowing a boat across the water. And if we are to believe this is Monty dropping something in, which would be Hallie's body. That's so far stretched. I don't know if I would believe that one. So, well, I mean, honestly, a lot of these are pretty far stretched for me for a lot of reasons. Like, again, I, I dislike when we attribute every single experience to one singular ghost, especially right. at a place where people stay. Um, I think it's, it's lazy. It's lazy to say that the only possibility of all of these is that it's Hallie. And it's not to say that her ghost isn't there, but you also come back to the, she didn't die there. Mm -hmm. She died presumably at her home. Has there been any reports of any hauntings in the place that was her previous home? Never that I've saw any reference to, although, um, uh, it would be interesting to look into, but I, sure. I saw absolutely no references, which tells me too. I mean, again, it is very possible we have a residual haunting, right? Or that some of these spirits are not Hallie, because again, it's a freaking hundred year old, hundred plus year olds black building hole of dead bodies, black hole of dead bodies. Uh, I just think again, I think it's the height of laziness to attribute every single haunting in a place to one spirit when there's been so many people who've traveled through. For sure. Especially like it's common to do that when there's such a significant legend or lore connected yeah. to a place that you mm-hmm. want to identify it with that. But yeah. again, that's what makes it legend and or lore. That's what makes it legend and or lore. Uh, we are not saying that that her ghost does not haunt there, but it's a lot of anecdotal evidence. For sure. Uh, now, the one story I read that I did really like. Ooh, I'm excited. So it was from a um, Quileute storyteller, Anita Wheeler. Mm-hmm. And she had shared this story in an article in the Peninsula Daily News in 2010. And she said it was passed down from her grandfather. Oh, cool. And this is the quote. The spirits that dance on the top of the water are not what we would typically think of as ghosts. Ghosts are kind of a Western European concept. Tsiatko, which apologies if I've completely butchered how to say that, (laughs) is what we believe is left. Everything that is evil and unbalanced and out of harmony and unnatural after a person passes. Because everything else travels on to the other side of life with them. So the Quileut say that the fog rising from the lake is Tiatko trying to move on. So if you ever go and look, the fog on the lake does look like spirits. Hmm. So the, the fog you see on the lake, according to these stories, it's not ghosts how we would think about them. It's all of that unbalanced and, and almost negative energy left over. Almost like unfinished business, maybe? That's then trying to move on. But it's not the spirit of the person that themselves because they've passed on. So I, huh. I really, really dug that it's i thought interesting. that was really cool and a really interesting way to think about it yeah 
So uh, that of all the different pieces I read, that was the story I was like, oh, I like that. And that wasn't one I'd heard before. Yeah, um, I haven't heard that either. But uh, that is the story of the Lady of the Lake and Hallie Illingworth. Wow. You taught me something new today, Kim Delvet. <laughs> That's a great story. I almost feel like it would be such a good like tourist trap for the Crescent Lake Hotel or motel or whatever exists there today to sell little soaps in the shape of... Oh, God, that's poor taste to me. That's horribly <laughs> poor taste. That's... Oh, I'm glad... I would... If I saw that, I'd be like, that's gross. That's gross. I know, gross. but I, of course leave it to me to think that that would be funny uh that's well because that's that's disrespectful of of a dead woman that's, that's true like uh, there's a lot of, i mean i don't know that's that's like selling a doll of elizabeth smart that you could cut in half or something like that's just Fair. okay i take that's it back. poor taste that's poor taste what and about not just like way. little soaps in general that are not shaped in the butt in the shape of like a lady well, with I the mean, green dress you sell soap sure Okay. Don't don't make it associated with a legend because again, that's that's gross. That's okay, fair. <laughs> You're profiting off of somebody's death. Like if if her family came, like how how would you say that to her family? How would you tell your her family that you were selling soap in her likeness? It's a way to remember her while you're making yourself clean. I don't sure. know. That's no, no. I'm vetoing. I'm vetoing. That's not a that's that's not a good idea, Gabby. Okay, <laughs> that's bad a bad idea. idea. That's All a right. bad idea. Forget I suggested it. <laughs> <laughs> but I do love this story because I feel like it's one of those that sometimes you'll come across people that have heard it and that have mm-hmm. not. And what you do here sometimes is just a ghost story, but you don't know the context yeah. of like where it came from. Yeah. So I love that that little background. I'm sad though that she was so physically abused by her husband. That's so unfortunate. But yeah. you know, every so often with some of these cases, and it's it's usually women who I encounter. I'm reading about because a lot of uh, you know victims of violent crimes are often women, right? And I I read about some of these women where I'm like, I wish you had been born later. Because I feel like the world would have been better to you if you'd been born later. Mm -hmm. The world wasn't ready for her. The world wasn't ready for her and didn't offer her the things she wanted to do. Didn't give her the opportunities she probably deserved. Mm -hmm. And I, there's a lot of cases where I, I, I read about somebody and I'm like, oh, you... You had a hard life, and if you'd been born today, it's not to say that your hard your life wouldn't have been hard if you'd been born today. But I feel like you would have fit better into the world today. Maybe had been more accepted, or because yeah, she not was as frowned down upon. Or well, she was a woman who just she want she was restless. She was restless at what was available to her at her options because being a woman, particularly when you get to a point where you're a twice divorced woman in the 1930s in the United States, there's only so many things that you can do with an eighth grade education as well. Like, I think that always makes me sad too, that this is, this is still a woman who was killed young Mm -hmm. and had a lot of life left in her. I always get sad thinking about what could have been for people who are, are killed so early. Um, I agree. And I feel like it's one of those situations that there are so many frustrating aspects to it. Like the fact that, even though she was quote unquote in Alaska with this other man that like no one was able to really like look into it because yeah. at the time they didn't really have the means or understanding yeah. to do so. And her family, her family wasn't wealthy too. It's not like, I mean, you know, if you're, if your family had money and it, 
it's a story that I feel like we're still telling. When you have money, there's a lot of things you can do and resources yeah, available. You have money, you can hire the Pinkertons and the Pinkertons could go investigate. You hire a private investigator who can go investigate. But when your family doesn't have money and your daughter disappears and her husband says she ran off, there's not much that anyone can really do about it. No. It's just really sad. Like that, and then the fact that Monty didn't even like spend that much time in jail. Like, screw that, dude. I mean, at least the family did get some level of closure and that her body was found. Sure. And they know who did it, even though Monty claimed till the end that he didn't do it. And, you know, there's cases we do where I do try to sometimes look at things a little more objectively because I, I do find... We have a habit of, of it's how you shape the narrative, you know, right. we, we hear the narrative that's always told, but it's not unbiased and, and you have to be careful. You have to look at all the facts. You have to look at all the sides. This is not one where I think it's I, it, Monty killed her. There is no doubt in my mind that For Monty sure. killed her. Absolutely none. This is, this is a guy who, who, again, probably not, he didn't premeditate it, but he killed his wife. And paid very little for it at the end of the day. He, he, he took someone's life. Mm-hmm dumped her in a lake and left her there. Didn't seem to feel much remorse either, you know? No, moved on with his life. Moved on to his new squeeze and was fine. Yeah. So... Dudes are shitty. Shitty dudes. Shitty dudes. Um, Not all dudes. Just a lot of dudes are are dumb. Uh, No offense to anybody listening. (laughs) Uh, Having said that... Having said that... That brings us to... Oh, that's terrifying. <laughs> so, 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 um, I actually am proud to have something to talk about this week. That's not Woo-woo. a book that I'm reading for an episode, even though I need to do that still. Um, I actually have been on the outside of Kim's uh, hundred days of horror. So basically <laughs> like there, Kim and her group of friends are doing a hundred days of horror films leading up to Halloween that they've never seen. And I'm trying to jump on that bandwagon, but ain't nobody got time for a hundred for me. I'm just saying, I'll join a couple here. I hear you, girl. I know, right? But I'm in this little group where they talk about the movies. And so I'll be reading about them and maybe pick and choose something I'll watch. And Bob, our friend Bob, recommended the film Shirley. And it's on Hulu. Oh, yeah. That's about Shirley Shirley Jackson. Mm -hmm. Shirley Jackson. Mm -hmm. And... It's really good. Uh, I watched it today, actually, because I needed Ooh. to come prepared with a creepy critics corner. And I really had been, ha- I had this on my like to-do list of things to watch um, and just haven't had a chance to watch it. But it's really beautifully done. It is about Shirley Jackson. So if you have read any of her stuff, like I, I was an English major. And so like, I loved her, her stuff that she wrote. I remember the first thing I read of hers was, Actually, when they talk about it in the movie, um, the lottery is a mm, short story. Yeah, well, because we used to have to read that in school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so that's when I was first exposed to Shirley Jackson, mm-hmm. and so I really loved her stuff because it's real dark. And even though the film itself is not technically a horror film, it's speaking about a horror genre. It's adjacent. <laughs> it is. I would say it's definitely adjacent. The way that it's shot and the type of music that's used in it and the perspective chosen in the film is 
kind of creepy. Like it has creepy vibes to it. And it do, it almost feels like you are watching a horror movie, but the content isn't fully horror. And then there's like little bits and pieces that it shows of horror potential mm-hmm. that doesn't necessarily fully go there. So if you're like me and you like horror, but you're scared of it too, um, <laughs> this is a great film to watch because it kind of like lightly dips your toe into it without jumping in. So was Elizabeth Moss. That yeah, no, that one it's I'm intrigued by that. That's on my list to try to watch sometime soon. It's good. You'd like it. Mm-hmm. Um it is a newer movie. I didn't realize how new it was. It just came out, I think either this year or last year. And it was a yes. uh, Hulu exclusive. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you have Hulu, it's on there. You should watch it. I think it. I think it was this year. Yeah. That's all I have for Creepy Critics Corner today. <laughs> oh, yes. As, as Gabby mentioned, and I think I've, I've mentioned multiple times, um, I started doing 100 Days of Horror. This is year... Six? Se- six or seven? Seven? I started doing this in 2014. I started the Facebook group a couple of years ago because people seemed into joining in. And it's, it's grown quite a bit, which is pretty cool. I have to say, I've watched a lot of duds as of late, but I have watched a couple that I enjoyed. Can I ask you about the shark one? Because I saw oh, you post God. about the shark one and I Holy... just want to understand your thought okay. process. Okay. So this movie, this is a, this is a, <laughs> it sucks, don't watch it movie. The movie is called Planet of the Sharks. <laughs> just the title. I knew going into it, it wasn't going to be good. Like I knew, I knew, but there is that line where something is so bad, it circles back around to being good. Is that this a pun to not... a shark circling? Sure. I don't know. So yeah, the movie's bad. It sucks. Don't watch it. It's not fun bad. It's bad, bad. It's just bad. It's just, there's not a whole lot redeeming about so it. don't watch it. Just regard this as, 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 as a movie to watch. Um, no, the movies I was going to talk about. <laughs> uh, so one that was called I See You, which is, again, it's pretty new. It came out in 2019, I believe, and it stars Helen Hunt. Uh, and it's, it's a nice little thriller. It, you know, the, the basic premise of it is this boy goes missing and murdered. And, and there seems to be this uh, connected to the series of, of boys who were like, you know, 12 years old going missing and being murdered. Mm -hmm. And, uh, this detective is brought on to investigate and he's married to Helen Hunt and they're, well, her name's Jackie, not Helen Hunt in the movie. There's weird stuff happening at home at the same time. And oh. it, it's a, it's just a, it, it's worth a watch. It, it was really solid. The acting was good. The story was interesting. Uh, and it, it had some twists that I actually found to be genuinely surprising. And then the the other one that I watched that is a little bit lower budget was one called Butterfly Kisses. And it's a found footage movie. And I'm unapologetic found footage junkie. I love found footage movies. And there's kind of layers to this one. It's it's a, a guy who finds these, these tapes, so he finds the footage. And it looks to be some kind of student film about a, a legend. Ooh. Um, of a a kind of boogeyman and he tries to finish the short film that was being put together the student film that was being put together and he thinks it's all true so this other documentary crew is is like filming his process trying to finish the student film but they start to question did he actually find this is he faking the whole thing and so there's there's like all these different layers to it and 
it's not the largest budget film in the world. Like it's, but if you're a found footage fan, it's um, it's worth a watch. You'll enjoy this. That it had some cool new ideas and was genuinely intriguing. That uh, sounds so, really good. Yeah, those are two two I've watched more recently that that I would recommend, and then a whole lot that I wouldn't. All right. Well, <laughs> thank you for the recommendations. Mm-hmm. We have homework to do. We have homework. So, having said that. Thank you for the people that have left us some reviews lately on Apple Podcasts. So many nice reviews. So, thank you so much. I'm just gonna shout out a couple people. Eat, drink, travel, dream. Amen. Wish I could do the same. Uh <laughs> Bobby Verse, QMAC, Pex in the City. I think I know who you are. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate all the positive things you've had to say about the podcast. I know I can speak for both Kim and myself when we say that what gives us pleasure and makes us happy is when we know that we're making you happy and that you're enjoying the content that we provide. So we appreciate you so much for all of your reviews. And if you haven't left us a review or a rating, please go to Apple Podcasts and leave us one there. Also, please feel free to subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, wherever you listen to podcasts. So that way, you know when we're having new episodes that are coming out. And, you know, we just appreciate you. So thank you. If you haven't checked out our Instagram, it is Ghoulish Tendencies Podcast. We usually post stuff on there for a visual reference of all the things we talk about. We also have a website, ghoulishtendencies.com that has every single one of our episodes on there with all of our show notes. So if you're curious about the research that we do and where we get our information, it's all on there for you. And that also has links to our previous podcasts, uh, A Ghost Stories. So if you're curious about what we've done in the past, it's a podcast about Seattle Pacific Northwest haunted locations that we've potentially investigated or talked about. And there's some history in there too. So feel free to check that out. We also have Patreon, which is Ghoulish Tendencies Podcast. And we also have Twitter, Ghoulish Podcast. We also have a Facebook page. Oh, it is yeah. Ghoulish Tendencies Podcast. You might but sense a theme in the names of all of these. If you haven't caught on yet, I don't know what to do for you. So um, please share with us what you enjoy. If you have any requests, we always love to take them too. And I'm going to bring this back. If you have a ghost story, please record a voice memo and feel free to email it to us at Gabby, G-A-B-I, at ghoulishtendencies.com. And maybe we'll put you on one of our episodes. Who knew? So thank you so much for listening. Stay spooky. spooky.